0: Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day.
1: Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane
0: Cowboys. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, and whether or not you do, do it anyway. Sign up or subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher.
1: So every episode, you hear me say that I'm Josiah Neely and I'm with the R Street Institute, but you might wonder, you might not know, what is the R Street Institute? So to answer that question, we have our guest today, who is Eli Lair, the president of the R Street Institute. Eli, welcome to the program.
2: Hey, Josiah. Hey, Doug. Thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be here.
1: So I want to talk about R Street's origin story, if you will, and some of the stuff that we do. But before we get to that, could you just talk a little bit about your background, how you got involved in politics and interested
2: in political things? Of course. I grew up very much on the political left. Bill Ayers and Bernardine Dorn, actually, are close family friends of my parents and lovely people, personally. I moved towards the right uh, primarily in college, And by the time I moved to Washington, D.C., I took a job for the Washington Times, Insight Magazine, a now defunct subsidiary of the Washington Times. The evolution path from there was a pretty typical Washington story. The job at the Washington Times led to one at the Heritage Foundation, which led to one at AEI, which led to one at Unisys, the IT company. I worked on the Hill as a speechwriter to Bill Frist when he was the Senate Majority Leader, and uh, I uh, was at um, another think tank and then at the Heartland Institute, and our street uh, almost exactly seven years ago spun off of the Heartland Institute.
1: Okay, great. Yeah. So let's, let's uh, talk a little bit about that, because R Street is a little different than some other think tanks in that it kind of existed before it existed, in that it had a pre-existing life, both at Heartland and then also, I guess, even before that at CEI. So what, what was the nature of that?
2: So the organization that's now R Street began as a project of the Competitive Enterprise Institute in 2006, I guess. I left CEI, partly to dispute over finances, with my staff and my donors for the Heartland Institute. After two years and eight months or so at Heartland, the then-CEO of Heartland made a decision to run a billboard digitally over a major freeway in Chicago with a picture of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, on it. The message of the billboard was, I still believe in global warming, do you? Yeah. At the time, most of the donors to the center I ran at the Heartland Institute were insurance companies. All insurance companies use climate change in their modeling. So the billboarded effect was saying that um, my donors were serial killers, and that was a somewhat problematic message in my judgment.
1: Yeah, that's probably not good donor relations.
2: Yeah, that, that caused, it caused a handful of problems to have my boss saying that people who supported me and me myself were serial killers. Not a very good way to go about things. So myself and uh, everybody but one person who worked for me, said we were leaving heartland took over the washington dc office and set up business as the R street institute and the billboards ran in early may our streets official first day in business as a freestanding organization was june 1st 2012 so it will be seven years on june 1st 2019
1: Right, and this podcast, if I have our dates right, uh, should run on June third. So, you know, some holidays get transferred to the Monday or, or the following Monday or whatever. So that's the same thing with the with the R Street birthday. It's going to be transferred to the Monday, I think.
2: Yeah. Why not? We, uh, In fact, June 1st was one of the potential names of the organization.
1: Let's talk about this, because when I talk to people about R Street, some of the common questions I get are, first, what is R Street? But then also, why is it called R Street? As I understand it, there were several possible names that were in contention, and R Street was the one that was settled on. But what, what were the other options?
2: The other options that got serious consideration were June 1st and the Metis Institute. Metis being the Greek goddess of common sense.
1: The Metis Institute to me sounds like something out of uh, maybe a James Bond novel or something. What was the idea behind R Street? A lot of people ask, well, is the R for Republican or is it for reasonable? Um, is it, you know, for Russia? We secretly get funded by Putin. What, <laughs> why Street?"
2: Oh, I had never heard the Putin one. That's a good one. Maybe I'll yeah. have to like feed that to some conspiracy theorists or something. The short answer to the question is that the original offices were right near the corner of Connecticut and R. Connecticut Avenue in Washington, D.C., is arguably the main street in D.C. It starts at the National Mall, runs through K Street, where all the lobbyists are. And at R street, it enters a residential portion of D.C. So R street is where real life begins in Washington, D.C. And as an organization devoted to finding practical liberty-oriented solutions to problems, having a name like that was a good one. And it spoke to what we wanted to do. In addition, there were some other advantages to it. It was a short URL that we could get. We knew that almost everything would be on the web, so we wanted a short, easy-to-spell URL. In addition, we're a right-of-center think tank of people who've worked in politics and now work for our street, virtually all work for Republicans, and we knew we were going to take some heterodox positions, and we wanted to make it clear where we stand. So having something that could be considered to stand for right or Republican was sort of a bonus. Those are the main reasons.
1: Yeah, I will say just in terms of the names, occasionally I will get people who think that the organization is our street, O-U-R street. And I did. One time I I was testifying on a bill and it was written down as uh, I was representing the Artistry Institute. So, you know. The arts are very important, I guess.
2: All of the people who were on on day one are considered co-founders of our Street. Well, there is a sort of our Street basis of it as well. Now, at one time, everybody who worked for it was a co-founder of it. Right. Now that we have 70-some employees... It's no longer really operative that everybody could be considered to have helped found the organization. But well, um, I'm sure everybody's still highly valued. Oh yes, we just I'm very proud of the fact that we just won a Washingtonian 50 Best Places to Work award. We were the only public policy organization on the list. You know, I'm sure that not everybody is blissfully happy at our street all the time. But we've had low employee turnover and we're just recognized by the big city magazine in Washington as an excellent place to work. So we're very proud yeah, of and,
1: it. And they do pump uh, nitrous oxide through the, the, the air ducts there at the offices. So everyone is pretty happy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's the secret mind control technology. we use. You know? <laughs> yeah. The secret mind control lasers. Drones. Right.
1: Yeah. 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 Well, we don't want to talk about all of that. So uh, let's just talk about a little bit about some of the issues that, we cover. So as you mentioned, it started out when we split off, we were exclusively focused on insurance reform. And we've had Ray Lehman, who heads the insurance program on a prior podcast, to talk a little bit more about the flood insurance and some other stuff. But just for people who haven't listened to that, what is the kind of big picture perspective of the work that we do in terms of insurance reform?
2: So on insurance reform, our primary goal is to establish a free market that sends appropriate risk signals to people. We think that this type of market will make it easier to both sell the insurance that people need, make it more affordable for most people, and uh, result in in the continued success of an important economic sector. To advance this, we want to significantly reduce, if not end, the ability of the government to set insurance rates as it can do in 49 states. Uh, Illinois is the one exception to that. The effect of this is not to make insurance any cheaper because the companies have to stay in business and make a profit. It instead just redistributes who pays for it from people who are risky to insure to people who are safe to insure. And that doesn't make any sense because it means that a lot of the people who may behave in the safest way uh, pay more than they should. And you're creating an enormous moral hazard by subsidizing people who are doing things that are unsafe. So that's sort of where we come from.
1: Okay, great. Uh, And then when we split off, there are lots of single issue think tanks or other organizations. So you definitely could have decided to just stick with the insurance reform thing, but we have added other issue areas and it's kind of a a smorgasbord of different stuff, energy, criminal justice, technology. How do we decide to do that? And then also, what is the kind of general framework that we approach, you know, when we're thinking about, what well, we're going to get into these issues, what's our perspective going to be? The other big think tanks that are out there that are right at the center, you got Cato, they're the libertarians, and then Heritage is uh, more conservative, and the AEI is also conservative, but perhaps a little bit more technocratic in, uh, in outlook. Um, so what would be the distinctiveness of our street as far as
2: that goes? Sure. So there are sort of two questions here. I'll answer the second one first, if that's okay. So on sort of how we're different from other think tanks, our street is committed to what it says on on our logo and on the back of every person's business card is free markets, real solutions. What this embodies is the idea that we advance free market pro-liberty principles in all of our work. But rather than trying to look for the ideal solutions that would exist in a perfect world, which is what a lot of liberty-oriented people do, we instead focus on what we actually can get done, how we can actually move the ball forward. So this involves looking at things that might not be the best solution, but is a solution that reflects the way that society exists and has evolved. So it's libertarian in outlook, but conservative in the way it approaches society, and moderate in tone and willingness to work uh, with everybody. Moderation, for our street, is not a noun, is an adjective. We're not moderates as an organization. Our principles are very strongly um, in favor of liberty in close cases rather than equity. But at the same time, we see that it's necessary often to work towards something that is a practical solution and is one that is not based on attacking other people but rather on finding common ground. So that's the first part of your question at least. Or the second part, I should okay. say. Yeah. The first part of your question how do we decide what to work on? Decisions about our streets' growth are made largely by the executives and project directors um, in consultation with the board and the rest of the staff. Uh, most of the areas we expand into are adjacent to areas where we already work in. So, our most recent new project launch was cybersecurity. That was very much adjacent to work we were already doing on technology and grew out of it. And that's how most of our projects started, was we had a piece of a project which became distinct enough to be its own freestanding project. So there are lines, sometimes ones that you can't see from the outside, between nearly all of our projects and sometimes in a very indirect fashion. Many of them are spun out of the insurance project, in fact. Our environment and energy project, which looks at climate change, uh, evolved in part out of our work on flood insurance, which is impacted somewhat by uh, anthropogenic climate change. So there's a lot to unpack in the way we do it. When it comes to particulars, uh, it's what interests us, what we think will have an impact. And like any other organization, what we can pay for. In general, donors have no input into our overall philosophy, some ability, though. And we talk with donors a lot about where we focus and exactly what we do um, within within the areas which we've already decided to work.
1: So I've had a surprising number of conversations with folks who are thinking about starting Think tanks. Doug, you also started a think tank. <laughs> um, yeah, not long ago. What are some of the hardest parts of starting a successful think tank, and you know the challenges of the
2: of the job? Good question. I'd say that the most important part of a think tank CEO's job is to get fantastic people on board. A, a think tank doesn't have significant hard physical capital and in fact is probably at a disadvantage if it invests in a big building or anything like that. So the entire brand, everything about it, involves being able to recruit good people. The other two major parts of somebody running a think tank are raising money and setting a broad vision for the organization. All three of the things interrelate, but having a top-notch staff and people who are not just good but fantastic at what they do is the most important thing. If you can build a fantastic team, the other stuff eventually, sometimes with significant uh, sweat and hard work, becomes much easier.
1: And I noticed one of the things that has kind of struck me about R Street is there is what I will call perhaps a playfulness about... Place and your attitude towards things, and to give one example, I, I believe well, I could give a couple of examples. One is when I interviewed at R Street, you know, there, there was a lot of the standard job interview questions, but there was also a lightning round where I was asked, uh, among other things, to identify certain South Park characters. Uh, I think you asked who my second favorite nineteenth-century president was. <laughs> Uh, so there's that. There's also um, our social media person Shoshana. When she met certain metrics, she got to go to Costa Rica to go look at sloths. You know, yes. uh, I don't know if that would happen at AEI or not. But so, is there a thinking behind that? Is that just you know, it's my organization. I'm I'm going to have fun with it, or is there kind of a broader plan behind that? No,
2: it's it's very deliberate. I think that people become. Too worked up and too angry when every policy thing and everything that people do for a living is taken is taken too seriously. I remember hearing from somebody talking about licensing interior decorators being called and being told that because they opposed interior decorators licenses that they would kill people as a result. <laughs> that, that if interior decorators were weren't licensed like hundreds or thousands of people would die. Right, yes. That's a huge example of people taking themselves and their work too seriously. Having a sense of humor and approaching work as if there is fun in it is a very important part of being able to do a good job and is a very important part of realizing that, while the work we do is important and serious, it is not always a matter of life and death. Sometimes, maybe it is. There are issues that could be considered, you know, nationally of extreme national importance. By definition, most things, most of the time, are just not that important. Furthermore, it just makes for a better work environment to have people who have a sense of humor. I mean, the few people I know who I'd consider absolutely humorless, many of them are capable, moral people. And they're terrible to be around because it's something that everybody wants virtually, unless you're one of the handful of really glum people. And if I run an organization, I'd rather have people who are going to be fun. Yeah.
1: So I don't know if you're aware, but in Texas recently, they apparently accidentally did not renew the licensing structure for plumbers. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's a you know that's a good advance there. Two years ago, they accidentally didn't renew the licensing for the medical board, and in that case, uh, they decided to call a special session to do it. I guess because they, um, you know, yeah. I mean, it would have been a good uh, natural experiment, yeah. right? You know, to see what actually would happen. But they decided they didn't want to do that. I don't think they're going to do that for the plumbers, though. The plumbers don't have quite the same amount yeah. kind of heft.
2: Mentioning insurance, in fact, it was. The best insurance regulatory system in the country is in Illinois, and that's how it happened. They couldn't agree on exactly how they were going to regulate insurance rates. The statute lapsed, and they couldn't agree on anything, so they decided they weren't going to. And that was nearly 50 years ago now, and it's worked pretty well. So, and
1: I'm not endorsing this, but I believe there was a case of maybe like a decade or so where in Rhode Island— They were repassing their criminal statute and they accidentally left the prohibition on prostitution out. And so there was a period of time there where prostitution was legal. And I believe that's been like a source of social science research in terms of, well, you know, like the the issue that you normally have with legalization is, well, the states that decide they want to legalize something like prostitution are very different. You know, Nevada is very different from Utah. But if it happens on accident, you know, maybe that would give you a, a clearer picture of what the real results are. And I don't actually know what the conclusions yeah. from that have been, but
2: yeah. well, in 1971, um, uh, you know, the Texas legislature passed um, a resolution honoring uh, a, a gentleman named Albert DeSalvo for his dedication to uh, the weak and lonely to achieve a new degree of concern. And uh, he had been officially recognized by Massachusetts. Albert DeSalvo um was better known as the Boston Strangler. This did pass. <laughs> it was a resolution that passed the Texas Legislature in 1971. You can look it up. Doug, do you have any questions about running a think tank? Uh, things. Uh, yeah, me? yeah.
1: How
0: do you do it? Um, yeah, we uh, we started this thing just over a year ago, so we are so brand new to this, and you know, probably foolhardy for even trying because we didn't start from a policy background. So, uh, what's the expression? We're drinking from a fire hose, right? now. So knowing that about us, you know, other than please don't be so harsh as to say, you're out of your minds, don't do this. What would be your advice to an emerging free market oriented think tank? Uh, I, I think that the organizations that
2: have focused on whatever they could be really excellent at doing are the ones that have been most successful. Our street, even as a medium-sized organization, doesn't tackle a lot of important issues. We don't work on healthcare or immigration, for example, at all. And that's deliberate because we can't be really excellent at them. They're just too crowded for us to play a big role. So the organizations that have sort of huddled along are ones that play Me Too all the time and just do all sorts of things those that focus on a few things that they could do really well and typically on a few types of donors who will support them to do those things
0: uh, are the ones that succeed. And I think that's so throughout the nonprofit sector and in business general. Oh, that's definitely true in business. And that's my background as a business lawyer. But yeah, we and that's kind of been our approach is we've really tried to, it's always tempted to chase rabbits, but we're trying to focus primarily on what I call evangelizing uh, millennials and Gen Z on, yep. on capitalism and really, you know, explain free market economics. Uh, and then the other is urban policy. And I have to admit, we're kind of lagging behind on that. But we kind of view them as very related uh, just because, you know, the younger people are uh, attracted to cities more and, you know, and, and urban living. And we kind of feel like there needs to be a sort of right of center, free market oriented approach to urban policy and it's something that uh, we you know we're, we're committed to doing and i think that now with some additional resources that are coming our direction i think we're going to be able to double yeah. down there on are a few folks let's talk offline there are a few folks i
2: might be able to introduce you to who have some interest in that and of course Wall street does some work in the Wonderful. Area too. but i think that's exactly the right approach that you're taking is picking the handful of issues I think that there's a pitfall in constructing it too too narrowly so that you can't take advantage of new uh, of new ideas and new things. One of our street's significant programs is on jail reform and we work on jails in particular because a large foundation was interested in jails we had a Interest in a variety of correctional things. Had I had my druthers, we probably would have done more on juvenile detention, actually. But there was a strong interest in it, and it sure was mission-consistent. It sure was interest. So we did that, and it's been a very successful project, and I wouldn't have it any other way.
0: Yeah, our, our big, uh, I don't want to say distraction, is probably too strong of a word, but there's recurring temptation to spend a lot of time on trade. Uh, you know, Texas, because we're Texas focused, Texas is the number one exporter in the country. And with all the trade wars going on, the renegotiations of NAFTA, uh, we've been pulled into that discussion quite a lot. But again, it's sort of a nice teaching moment for a come you know, if we're going to talk about free enterprise Free trade is part of that, so we kind of justify that as being part and parcel with the free enterprise side. But has it really been by design that we spend this much time on uh, on free trade? So let's
1: talk about a couple of semi-random topics, Eli. So you recently had a op-ed here in Texas about uh, vaccination and how to deal with parents who are uncomfortable or don't want to vaccinate their children—that that sort of thing. This is obviously. Been a growing issue of concern, uh, not only here in Texas, but other places too. There have been some measles outbreaks and whatnot. So, you know, what's your kind of perspective on so, all of that?
2: Uh, number one, I'd say that I do not think that anything other than following the schedule of vaccinations recommended by doctors and public health professionals is a good mm-hmm. idea. I think that all parents should vaccinate their children according to that schedule, except and only if there is a very clear medical reason, which is clearly diagnosed. I think, though, that efforts favored by some people, mostly on the left, to sort of forcibly vaccinate people are... Not a good idea either. Instead, I think you need to move people towards doing what is responsible. There are a number of things you can do to do that. Some of them are existing laws, like mandates that uh, you have vaccinations order to attend school. It also would be a good idea to do what some very liberal states like Massachusetts have done and make other government benefits beyond just school attendance contingent partly on getting vaccinations. In addition, doctors giving medical excuses uh, should themselves be looked at. Some of the non-vaccination problems caused by doctors who provide medical excuses when there is no medical reason. This is a handful of rogue doctors. And the medical boards need to take a close look at the doctors who provide lots and lots of medical exemptions to vaccination. I think that the anti-vax movement is not healthy for society and does not do a good job and is based to a decent extent on science that is either wrong or downright fraudulent. That said, I don't think that parents who have suspicions about vaccinations should be treated as stupid or evil or made into pariahs. There's lots of information out there. The idea of vaccination, where you're putting a disease pathogen, sometimes even a living disease pathogen, into your child combined with a variety of other things, some of which are harmful in doses that are much larger than what's in in vaccines, is not intuitive. And talking to people and meeting them where they are is a lot better than trying to demonize everybody who has doubts and suspicions. So it isn't a matter of giving in to people who have problems with vaccination. Basically, every child should be vaccinated. But it is a matter of recognizing their autonomy and recognizing what is in 99% of cases a sincere desire for parents to take good care of their children, something that every parent, myself included, shares. Yeah, I will say I'm very
1: pro-vaccination myself, but it does seem a little weird sometimes the amount of consternation and attention that is given to what is a fairly small percentage of people uh, that are not vaccinating for, you know, like measles or things like that, as opposed to, say, flu vaccines, where the vaccination, you know, I think that around 50% of people are not vaccinated, don't get the vaccine for the flu, and that kills 80,000 people a year, you know, uh,
2: but there's not the same sort of social stigma involved in that perhaps yeah. because it's, it's so much more common. It's also an opportunity right for virtue signaling, uh, particularly from people on the left. Not that some right. conservatives haven't done it too, I'm sure, but it's just what I see again and again, and what's particularly distressing to me, is a desire by people on both sides of the political spectrum, but more on the left. Um, more and more on the left than ever before, to believe that people aren't only wrong, but are actually evil if they disagree with even a relatively small part of one's ideology. I met just the other day with somebody um, who runs the group uh, Secular Pro-Life. She's a Democratic mm-hmm. Party member, left liberal, living in San Francisco, animal rights activist, vegan and pro-life. This makes her a rather odd person um, in the pro-life movement, but she's deeply and sincerely committed to both very liberal causes and the pro-life cause. And we need many more people like that. And both sides should embrace somebody like that rather than treating them as a pariah. Uh, yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so this
1: so this is kind of a two-stage question. But first, one thing that I think that some people have kind of picked up about R Street, and you in particular, Eli, is you have a, yes. a fondness for pirates.
2: Um, you have to sign a statement yeah. uh, agreeing to oppose ninjas. Pirates are much cooler than ninjas in basically all aspects of existence. And uh, they have a constitutional yeah, I mean, mandate. Yeah, there's an say. enumerated power of Congress to grant letters of mark and reprisal. That is a key part of uh, of creating state licensed pirates. Yeah, they're mentioned in the Constitution. during the golden age of piracy pirates were egalitarian and democratic. There were plenty of pirates didn't matter what your skin color was, male or female. you could be a pirate if you knew how to do the work of being a pirate. So that was awesome and ninjas, just like serve their daimyo. And the daimyo is basically the state. So ninjas basically were government bureaucrats who threw Shrookan uh, and, you know, dressed <laughs> in black. Yeah, basically bureaucrats. Uh, so we don't need right. ninjas. Pirates, on the other hand, were like free agents and just awesome. And it's often mentioned that pirates stole things, which is, True, but it sort of depends on what stealing means. (laughs) You see, during the golden age of piracy, everything that pirates in the Caribbean stole was actually stolen from the New World. So it's sort of a matter of opinion as to whether or not they were actually stealing. Workers' comp, and this really is where workers' comp comes from. In total seriousness, comes from the articles of pirate ships. Which, you, when you signed on to a pirate ship, or were forced to, you would sign the articles of the ship, and they said if your hand is cut off, you'll get three pieces of eight. You know, if your leg is cut off and you have to have a peg leg, you'll get like six pieces of eight. Uh, stuff like that. And that was such a good idea. It spread to other mariners and eventually to everybody else. The second
1: stage of the question or whatever is, um, so you you are also, I believe, a big fan of the Space Force concept. And I don't know if you saw, but uh, the other day, Senator Ted Cruz was giving a speech in favor of the Space Force, and he said that we needed the Space Force in order to deal with space pirates. So I didn't know if you had a perspective on that or you, if you would be pro-space piracy or how that should right.
2: I- interact with the Space Force. Yeah. Maybe the pirates well, should be the true. Space Force. To on a on a personal level, I, I'm sort of mixed on the need for a Space Force. I think it's probably not necessary. But in terms of space pirates, no, I'm very pro-space pirates. In fact, when you walk in to... Our streets, offices. There's a quote from the movie Serenity by Mel Reynolds, who is basically a space pirate. The TV show Firefly, one of, and the movie Serenity, which is probably one of the most libertarian mainstream movies ever made, is sort of my guide star and one of the greatest works of pop culture in recent history, uh, and it's totally about space pirates. So. No, having space pirates would be awesome, in my judgment, as long as they were like the crew of Serenity, and actually good. Now, if they were actually evil, as most right. pirates really were, that probably isn't as good. But if they like, you know, fought oppression and were like libertarians, I, I, I'd be for. Uh, I, I'd be for space pirates.
1: Okay. All right. Well, that's good to know. That's good to know. All right, well, Doug. Do you have any other questions before we sign off? No. It's been a
2: real pleasure.